This recording is brought to you by Whitworth University. To hear additional programs, please visit www.whitworth.edu backslash podcast. Old friend from grad school is sitting in the front row. So this is very exciting for me. Also because B.H. Fairchild is reading tonight. <laughs> Welcome. Thank you all for coming uh, to this evening's English Endowed Reading Series. Uh, featuring B.H. Fairchild. I first read B.H. Fairchild in graduate school, and as I was reading his book, Art of the Lathe, uh, which was published in 1998, uh, and was his third book at the time, uh, that one from Alice James Press, I remember hearing this kind of noise and pressure building in my head. I was a recent convert to poetry uh, from fiction. Um, being the kind of idiot that I was, I thought, well, poetry's short. <laughs> That'll be easier than fiction, because fiction's longer. As I was reading this book and this noise and pressure was building, I started to key in on what some of the, the aspects of this noise and pressure uh, were, where it was coming from, what, it, what, what was actually happening. Um, and as I think, as, you, as, as perhaps you may have experienced reading uh, something astounding, uh, that uh, especially something related to what you wanted to do, to the way you wanted to live your life, to the kind of person and artist that you wanted to be, and you see that work done as, as well as it's been done, you start to think, what have I done to myself? Uh, and, and as you read through the poems in, in Art of the Lathe, as I read through the poems in Art of the Lathe, I, I gathered an understanding of the things that poets need to do in order to be successful. The kinds of things that they needed to master simultaneously in order to write a great poem. And throughout this collection and all of Fairchild's collections, you will see uh, these sprawling narratives that begin in these incredibly specific places, um, and that before you know it, um, have you examining the, the, the history of humankind um, within the space of, of these, these, these wonderfully long and compact sentences uh, that, that grow to include so much. Right? So you have to be able to do those things. On top of that, you need to have sophisticated metaphors, metaphors that move us to see things in new ways, ways we'd never even thought to think, but when we see them, when we read them, we realize, yes, this is exactly how it is. This is how it has always been. Why didn't I see that? That's another one of the pressures building in my head as I'm reading through this collection for the first time. Uh, you also have to be aware of things like sound and the way words work together and the way rhythm works and how you can use those things to control the way the reader reacts to what they're reading or the way the audience reacts to what they're hearing. Right? Any of those things on their own uh, is somewhat difficult. Uh, to, to do them all at the same time was the, the pressure that was building in my head um, because I thought, how can anyone, much less me, possibly do that? At the same time, there is the noise. And what I came to recognize was that the noise was myself, kind of crying in joy 
at seeing this impossible thing being done. And I'd get to the end of a poem and, and realize that I'd read it five times in a row and was just weeping like a child and thinking, yeah, this is impossible. I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. And so I hope that, uh, we, that, that you uh, are, are as excited as I am. I don't know if that's possible. <laughs> but that some of that experience transfers you to, to, to you here tonight. Um, it's my great pleasure uh, and honor to present to you uh, the poet B.H. Fairchild. Thank you. Thank you, and thank you for being such a large audience. Poets, uh, over the years, get used to all kinds of sizes of, uh, of audiences, and so when somebody gives me a large one like this, I'm uh, eternally indebted to them. This is great, and uh, I want to thank, I've had an excellent time since I've been here, talked to so many uh, interesting people and interesting students. And I want to thank everybody who was involved in uh, inviting me to come and, and read here. Um, impossible to give a poetry reading and look out on a lot of young people without thinking of where I was in my life when I was a young person. And uh, I was at a stage in my life when I was discovering literature that I was really searching for some kind of meaning in life. I grew up in a small blue-collar town in the, in the lower Midwest. Uh, actually, it was the very center of the Dust Bowl, where um, I realized at the age of 14 or 15 that um, uh, my life had and was going to have just the same pattern to it. Work, eat, sleep. Well, television came in, then it was work, eat, television, sleep. And uh, I was, had become enough of an adult to realize that that was not something I wanted to look forward to every damn day of my life was work, eat, sleep, work, eat, sleep. And I was wondering, what, you know, what's the point? What's the point of all that? And what I was really <clears throat> so hungry for was evidence that life had meaning, that it wasn't just one thing after another, that it really added up to something that meant something. And what I discovered <clears throat> was that even though life seemed pointless to me, in literature, life always came to a point. In literature, there was always promise of meaningfulness in life. And um, I really think that, uh, to speak in colloquial terms, I really think that saved my ass, frankly. Uh, I don't know what I would have done without that, and so, uh, that's what I would like to happen in any poetry reading I give, is that somebody of, of well, older than that, but uh, somebody, some young person like that who is beginning to fall into that delusion, and it is a delusion, that life is pointless or that it doesn't have meaning, that I would be able to read poems that would convince them that, oh yes, it not only has meaning, it has infinite meaning. Um, <clears throat> uh, I... 
Um, I particularly want to, uh, I don't know if she's here tonight, I want to thank Annie Stiller, uh, who picked me up at the airport and has, has kind of shepherded me around campus uh, for her um, activity. Um, uh, I find her to be a very entertaining and amusing person. <laughs> uh, everybody here must, must like her immensely. <clears throat> um, Okay. I'm actually one of those poets who likes people to understand his poems. So I will usually, I, a, a rare and dying breed, I might ask. Uh, so I, I usually gloss the poem, that is, try to uh, mention things that would help you to understand it. And the first poem, is, is this working right? Because I feel like I'm... Uh, too loud at certain points. It's okay. Um, <clears throat> first poem I want to read is uh, entitled In a Cafe Near Tuba City, Arizona, Beating My Head Against the Cigarette Machine. That's not the poem, that's just the title. Um, <clears throat> but it has to do with a particularly difficult moment in my life er early on. Uh, I'm married, I have a, uh, a child. Um, and, um, and my, my, my car is, is just, you know, is in death throes, actually, and we've had a flat, and we're out on the highway in Tuba City, Arizona, which is right next door to nothing at all. <clears throat> um, there's one thing in here. Um, I was very proud when I moved to very near Los Angeles to actually read a poem on the air that almost got the entire radio station shut down. And it was because, of, very interesting, yeah, the, um, what's the name of the government agency that oversees radio and TV and so forth? What? FCC, right, the FCC. This was a politically radical station and they wanted any excuse to shut it down. So they actually had a guy kind of um, uh, listening in and, and monitoring the place. And the big irony is that it couldn't be a more innocent phrase that I used, that they thought they could actually close the station about because they were, of course, not understanding the phrase. But um, you will know the phrase when I come to it. It has to do with the fact. It has to do with the fact that when you uh, carry a baby on your back, uh, when the baby wets its pants, it wets your pants too. Okay, so that's what that phrase refers to. It is, it is nothing to get excited about. Um, the epigraph to this poem is from the Book of Common Prayer, uh, and the, the epigraph reads, um, it's the uh, prayer for the dead at sea, <clears throat> which would seem to be totally inappropriate for Arizona, I know, but anyway. <clears throat> The sea shall give up her dead, and the corruptible bodies of those who sleep in him shall be changed and made like unto his glorious body. The ruptured Pontiac, comatose and tilted on three wheels, seems to sink slowly like a drunken ship into the asphalt. My wife wanders aimlessly further into despair and an absence of traffic waving invisible semaphores along the embankment because she's waving her arms for somebody to stop for us. 
The infant we have misnamed after a suicidal poet writhes in harness across my back, her warm urine funneling between my buttocks and her yowls rip like sharks through the gray heat. But still beyond the screams, I hear somehow the flutter of chicken wings, buckets rattling, the howl of spaniels, and my grandfather's curse grinding against the dull, unjust sky of God and Oklahoma. I have given the waitress all my money, and she has taken it stuffed it into the heart-shaped pocket stamped with her ridiculous name, and removed herself to the storeroom with the cook, who wants only to doze through the afternoon lull, undisturbed by a man who has yanked the Paul Mall knob from the cigarette machine and now beats his head against the coin return button while mumbling the prayer for the burial of the dead at sea, which his grandmother taught him as a charm against drowning, in the long silences before tornadoes and floods when Black Bear Creek rose on the Oto and the windmill began to shriek like a gang of vampires. In the shards of the machine's mirror, I see the black line of blood dividing my forehead and a dozen versions of my wife sobbing now at the screen door while behind her our laundry has flown free of the Pontiac's wired trunk lid and drifts like gulls across the vast sea, the difficult sea surrounding Tuba City, Arizona, and my grandparents walk slowly toward us over the water in the serene and noble attitude of gods. Um, I was in college taking uh, various language courses uh, long, long ago when, in fact, uh, we didn't have DVDs or videos or any of that stuff. And so in language classes, like the Spanish language class in this poem, um, you would uh, watch 16-millimeter movies of people speaking Spanish. And, of course, everybody in the class would go to sleep. Uh, It was almost like that was what you were supposed to do because it was so common, except me. And I found those language films really intriguing. I found them intriguing because, one, they seemed to go on forever. That is, it would begin with three Spanish-speaking people at at like a sidewalk cafe, and they would be speaking Spanish. They would begin with them speaking Spanish, and it would end with them speaking Spanish, and there was no beginning or end to it. So it was kind of like a a little version of eternity. And then the other thing about the film is that they clearly loved each other, the speakers, because they were all speaking Spanish at the level of 101 Spanish. (laughs) So they were dealing with a very limited vocabulary. And yet they would sit there, and they would say things to each other like, um, Esmeralda would say, uh, I have a pencil. And Juan would say, I have a red pencil. Yeah. And then Julio would say, I too have a red pencil, but my dog is sick. <laughs> and, and so it was, a, it was a remarkable act of love, in my opinion. <laughs> that they would sit there speaking these ridiculous sentences to each other. 
<clears throat> so I finally had to write a poem about this, and it is called Language, Nonsense, Desire. Professor Ramirez dozes behind the projector, conversación espanol lapping over the bored shoulders of sophomores who dissolve in the film's languor of talk and coffee at a sidewalk cafe in Madrid or Barcelona or some other luminous Mediterranean dream. The tanned faces rounding into the Spanish air like bowls of still-life fruit offer little dialogues about streetcars or feathers over a clutter of plates and delicate white cups of mocha blend. The hands of the speakers are bright birds that lift and tremble among the anomalies of ordinary life. Piñatas, cousins who live in Peru, the last train to Zaragoza. The speakers are three friends forever entangled in the syntax of Spanish 101 faded to shape loose chatter into harmonies of discourse, arias of locus, donde esta la casa, and possession, yo tengo un perro. I have a dog. <laughs> Raul, his dark, hungry profile immaculately defined against the pallor of a white beach. The housewife Esmeralda erotic in her onyx curls, recalling a Catholic childhood that same black extravagance pressed against her pillow as she listened to the nun read stories and imagined herself as a gaucho, drunk and love-crazed in the hills of Argentina. And Juan Julio, articulate, epicene, fluttering his pianist's fingers as he croons melodiously about the rush of time. Que hora es? <laughs> Son las dos? I, and always in the background, along the periphery of syllable and gesture, the silent pilgrimage of traffic and commerce and light-dazzled crowds with some destination, some far blue promise to carry them through the day, some end to speech and love. Um, this is a fairly early poem, um, and early in my teaching career, I was teaching uh, what is variously called uh, remedial English, or um, oh God, it used to be called bonehead English, uh, discouraging, unfair names like that. But um, I, um, I had this one class, and it was a remedial English class, and it met at 8 o'clock in the morning, and I've never been good at early morning labors of any kind whatsoever. Um, and I had this class, and a woman, before the class started, came up to me, and she had with her, she was fairly elderly, and she had an even more elderly woman with her, and she said to me, uh, I hope you don't mind, this is my mother, and I'll have to bring her to class with me. I, of course, said, that's fine, no, no problem, she says, you have to understand, whenever she's in class, she thinks she's in church. I didn't take enough time to consider the implications <laughs> that this might have, but I certainly discovered as the class went on 
Um, and so that's what is happening in the poem. And she is there with her mother. Her mother's very elderly, and she thinks she's in church. And so when I do certain things, she confuses them with things that go on in her church. And the, she is of a very grassroots fundamentalist background. Um, and so this poem has lines from some of the old, old church hymns that kind of woven into it. Uh, they're not woven into it and with narrative continuity. They just sort of appear and then vanish. And I have two, uh, this is entitled The Limits of My Language, English 85B. The philosophers in the crowd, if there are any, will recognize the limits of my language as a phrase from Wittgenstein's uh, Tractatus. And so there are two epigraphs to the poem. One is a definition of verbs and nouns. Nouns normally serve to identify things in space, verbs to release them in time. And the other one epigraph is the sentence containing the title of the poem by Ludwig Wittgenstein, the limits of my language mean the limits of my world. The black shawl falls from your shoulders as you rise against your daughter's tugs and whispers, and your withered mouth opens in a dry quaver like voices heard across a wind-blown field, rock of ages cleft for me, and my students wake to listen. On that first day, she whispered, warning me. She thinks she's in church. She's my mother, and I'll have to bring her every day. Your eyes wandered like fish behind a glass, and your crooked hand jerked back from mine. So, I've become a minister to you, some fundamental backwoods screamer, redeemer of Oklahoma souls, surrounded by a choir of distant kinfolk robed in flecks of stained glass, light and shade. The old rugged cross are bringing in the sheaves lifts you right out of your seat at times. And we wait while your daughter puts you back in place. Be quiet now, Mama. There's no time for that. In her voice, I hear your own. Among hymns hovering on an Oklahoma Sunday years ago inside a white-framed church, let me hide myself in thee. And in your shaken glance and palsied hands, I see you kneeling there beneath dim memories of burnt-out fields and black locust clouds looming down, wailing with God's own sorrow. Let the water and the blood, creek floods crawling across gray moonlit ground, black hours and storm cellars between dank earth walls from thy riven side which flowed, your mother crying, the same hymns hanging in the air like dust as you knelt there that Sunday, clump of sink foil in your fist, big ribboned Easter hat pulled back as the preacher man laid hands on you and promised everything, hope, happiness, the heaven of eternal being. And so through a dust bowl girlhood, a husband headed for hell and one daughter who turned out right, you saved your best for last. Now you come into my room and take your place and stare into some space beyond these walls. Every time I take a stick of chalk, you see the wafer in my hand. Every time I write a word across the board, you see me beckon to the choir. Every time I ask, is this a verb or a noun, 
you turn the pages of your book. And when I spread my arms for answers, you rise slowly to sing. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, out of time and place. I drink large quantities of water when I give poetry readings. I forget, I forget the name of the L.A. poet who's very famous, Bukowski, Charles Bukowski, who when he read would always have a refrigerator put up on the stage filled with beer. So I thought it was a little kind of showy, you know. Oh, what a drunk I am, you know. <clears throat> uh, This is a, a, a more recent poem, um, and it started out with the title of simply what he said. And then I wasn't satisfied with the ending at all, and so I revised the poem a little, and now it is called, even though it appears in the book as what he said, now it's called what he said, what she said. What it has to do with is uh, really the idea that at least once in a lifetime, everybody deserves to say something exactly the way it should be said. Sorry to use this as a field for examples, but often in otherwise very harmonious marriages, there will come up what is called the marital spat. Yeah, and you may experience this someday. And you will not say it the way you want to, right? And she will win the argument. <laughs> And you will walk out of the house defeated and probably go to the nearest bar or whatever. Um, but um, yes, at some time, everybody deserved to say exactly the thing they wanted to say and feel good about themselves. Uh, this actually doesn't have anything to do with marriage. Um, it has to do, though, with somebody finally, one day, saying it exactly the way he wanted to say it, saying it perfectly. This has to do actually with um, something before your time. You all look very young to me, yes, before your time. Um, and it um, uh, actually has to do with the fact that uh, I worked, I had a number of jobs, but one of the jobs I had was being an usher at the theater in those days. And, you know, they wanted to be like the big time theaters, and so even in little small towns in Kansas, they would uh, um, have... Um, and either the good theater or the bad theater, um, they would have ushers, and I worked as an usher some of the time. And at the bad theater where I worked, um, they would often have movies that the Baptist minister would see, and then in two or three days, the movie would be uh, leave town. <clears throat> I mean, he would see the movie and then complain about it, and they would have to get rid of the movie. I always wondered about the fact that the Baptist minister always knew when that kind of movie was coming to town so that he could be there on time to see it so that it would not attract um, his, his flock and his church. Um, so, and sometimes these movies would star a French movie star by the name of Bridget Bardot. And Bridget Bardot was about the hottest looking woman I've ever seen in my life. Um, and she would alf often appear in these films without benefit of clothing. So anyway, there's this kid named J.D., and J.D. Uh, had actually managed to beat the Baptist minister to the movies and saw Bridget Bardot, and 
and he was really taken with her, and so this girl named Candy Baumeister was constantly ridiculing him, kidding him, uh, as falling in love with Bridget Bardot. And so on this one day, she does that, and he has to have something to say in retort. And he says something perfect. What he said, what she said. When Candy Baumeister announced to us all that J.D. was in love with Bridget Bardot, drawing those two syllables out like some kid stretching pink strands of double bubble from between her teeth, J.D. chose not to duck his head in the unjust shame of the truly innocent, but rather lifted it in the way of his father scanning the sky in silent prayer for the grace of rain abundant upon his doomed soybeans, or St. Francis blessing sparrows or the air itself, eyes radiant with truth and Jesus, and said, baby doll, I would walk on my tongue from here to Amarillo just to wash her dishes. <laughs> there is a time in the long affliction of our spoken lives when, among all the verbal bungling, stupidity, and general disorder that burden us like the ragged garment of the flesh itself, when beneath the vast and articulate shadows of the saints of language, the white dove of genius with its quick wild wings has entered our souls, our immaculate ignorance, and we are at last redeemed. And so is conceived and born, the thing said finally well, nay perfectly, rather like the way it issued from the thickly lipstick mouth of Candy Baumeister when she replied, baby doll, I've got a sink full of dishes. Why don't you wash and I'll dry and then we'll do it again. Well, it's not that easy. I don't like to boast about what I was up against there, but it's not that easy to write a poem about sex, which never mentions anything sexual. So it's all done in terms of washing dishes. Um, this next poem is called The Deposition. And you know this story already. Uh, the deposition actually refers to the taking of Christ down from the cross and putting him in the tomb. And it's been written about a lot of people, uh, by a lot of people. And so I'm certainly not, certainly not the first. Um, the epigraph for this poem comes from uh, a Reiner Maria Rilke poem called Washing the Corpse. And the lines are, and one without a name lay clean and naked there and gave commandments. The deposition. Dust storm, we thought. A brown swarm plugging the lungs or a locust cloud. But this was a collapse, a slow sinking to deeper brown and deeper still, like the sky seen from inside a well as we are lowered down and the air twisting and tearing at itself. But it was done, and the body hung there like a butchered thing, 
naked and alone in a sudden hush among the ravaged air. The ankles first, slender, blood-caked, pale in the sullen dark, legs broken below the knees, blue bruises smoldering to black, and the spikes. We tugged iron from human flesh that tinked that dangled like limbs not fully hacked from trees, nudged the crossbeam from side to side until the sign that mocked him broke loose. It took all three of us. We shouldered the body to the ground, yanked nails from wrists more delicate, it seemed, than a young girl's, but now swollen, gnarled, black as burnt twigs. The body so heavy for such a small man, was a knot of muscle, a batch of cuts and scratches from the scourging, and down the right side a clotted line of blood, the sour Posca clogging his ragged beard, the eyes exploded to a stare that shot through all of us and still speaks in my dreams. I know who you are. So we began to wash the body, wrenching the arms, now stiff and twisted to his sides, unbending the ruined legs and sponging off the dirt of the city. Sweat, urine, shit, all the body gives from the body, laying it out straight on a sheet of linen rank with perfumes so that we could cradle it, haul it to the tomb. The wind shouted. The foul air thickened. I reached over to close the eyes. I know who you are. Actually, I was talking earlier with students. Uh, one of the students wisely asked me the influence that cigarettes had had on my life as a poet. And the fact is that they, they had an immense influence, and I, I actually missed their presence. I'm not trying to... Yeah, I'm not going to be nostalgic so that you will desire cigarettes because it's stupid, clearly, to smoke them. But uh, in my generation, that was the standard way for a writer to get started writing in the morning was to come to the, and it would not have been a word processor, it would have been a typewriter. So you would come armed with cigarettes and coffee. And you wouldn't get a word on the, on the typewriter until you had lit up your cigarette and smoked half your coffee cup. Then you were ready to go. Sadly, uh, not this long ago, I had to substitute uh, for that. Uh, I found that a double espresso was very helpful for that, <clears throat> so I'm thankful for that. But I had to give up cigarettes. And like many people who had to give up cigarettes even 30 or 40 years ago, I still miss them. Yeah. It's still sort of not right to drink a morning cup of coffee without being attended by a cigarette. So that's this poem. This poem is called Cigarettes. <clears throat> Gross, loathsome, trays and plates loaded like rain gutters, butts crumpled and damp with gin, ashes still shedding the rank breath of exhaustion, nevertheless an integral part of human evolution, like reading. Cigarettes possess the nostalgic potency of old songs, hand on the steering wheel, Fat pack of Paul Malls snug under my sleeve, skinny bicep pressed against the car door so my muscle bulges and my girl, wanting a smoke, touches my arm. 
or 3 a.m. struggling with a Chekhov paper. I break the blue stamp with my thumb, nudge open petals of foil, and the bloom of nicotine puts me right back in the feed store where my grandfather used to trade. Leather, oats, burlap, and red sawdust are at the beach. Minute flares floating in the deep dark, rising, falling in the hands of aunts and uncles telling the old stories, drowsy with beer, waves lapping the sand and dragging their voices down. Consider the poverty of lungs drawing ordinary air, the unreality of it, the lie it tells about quotidian existence. Bad news craves cigarettes, whole heaps of them, sucking in the bad air the way the drowning gulp river water. Though in hospital rooms, I've seen grief let smoke gather slowly into pools that rise and rise again to nothing. I've studied the insincere purity of a mouth without the cigarette that gives the air form, the hand focus, the lips a sense of identity. The way Shirley Levin chattered after concerts, her fingers mimicking piano keys and the cigarette they held galloping in heart-like fibrillations until the thrill of it had unraveled in frayed strands of smoke. 1979, Sweet Lorraine, seventh, eighth chorus, and I'm looking at the small black scallops above the keyboard. A little history of smoke and jazz. Improvisation is a kind of forgetting. The music of cigarettes. Dawn stirs and lifts the smoke and dove gray striations that hang, then break, scatter, and regroup along the sill where paperbacks warp in sunlight and the cat claws house spiders. Cigarettes are the only way to make bleakness nutritional, or at least useful, something to do while feeling terrified. They cling to the despair of certain domestic scenes. My father, for instance, smoking L&M's all night in the kitchen, a sea of smoke risen to neck level as I wander in like some small craft drifting and lost in fog while a distant lighthouse flares a while and swings away. Yes, they kill you, but so do television and bureaucrats. And the drug tedium of certain rooms piped with tasteful music where we have all sat waiting for someone to enter with a silver plate laden with camels and lucky strikes, someone who leans into our ears and tells us that the day's work is done and done well and offers us black coffee in white cups and whispers the way trees whisper, yes, yes, oh, yes. Um, I seem to have acquired a habit of writing long poems, and uh, they seem to be among the poems that people are kind enough to remember best. And the fact is, I can't read more than one long poem in a uh, poetry reading, because uh, they just take up too much time. So I have this one poem that I will read to you. Um, you know, it just reads like a straight narrative. It sometimes troubles me that what is getting in the way of a 
audience, especially a student audience, of hearing and understanding my poems is they've taken too many literary theory classes and they don't know how to enjoy a poem <laughs> anymore. <laughs> and I want you to just pretend that this is like story time with Uncle Pete and forget everything you know about literature or the analysis of literature and just enjoy the poem if possible. Uh, this has to do with something crazy that was happening in my little town in Kansas when I was in high school. It was not a, not a town where there was a lot to do. It was a town where, well, probably the girls too, but certainly boys uh, were inventing things to make life more exciting. And one of the things, crazy as it was, that they invented to do was to uh, go to the junkyard, find an old car that uh, boys were... Uh, uh, had natural sort of skills with uh, cars those days the way they have with computers now. And uh, they could take the car, buy maybe $20 worth of parts, uh, work on it in the garage for two or three nights, and then take it out as long as they could get it to go for a few miles at a rate of 60 or 70 miles an hour. They would go out on some farm road that did not have fence line on the side, and they would get it up to that speed, and then the, and then the driver would whip the steering wheel like that, and it would make the car roll, okay? I don't know. I suppose the idea is that the way to beat boredom is to approach death as closely as possible, but <clears throat> that's, that's what was happening, and it got so out of hand that they were beginning to compete in how many times they could make their car roll. So this is what, that's what's happening in this poem, is, um, is they're rolling, and th these guys have never done this before, and so they're going out to do it, and there are four of them, and three of them are really afraid, very afraid, as any normal human being would. Uh, but there's one of them named Travis Doyle, who has an entirely different attitude toward this rolling cars and approaching death as closely as possible. Um, usually in literature classes, this sort of thing will be taught as a, um, a rite of passage, you know, young boys, and they want to become men, and so they'll do something really, really dangerous in order to become a man. I happen to disbelieve that. I think it's the opposite of that. I think Travis Doyle had the attitude he did about what would seem to be an absolutely deathly thing. I think it was actually, he, I don't think he wanted to grow up. I think he wanted to embrace his childhood. So I think that's often what's happening there that is misinterpreted as a rite of passage. Um, so... Um, yeah, the four boys are Mike Luck and Bill, Billy Hines, and Travis Doyle, and the one telling the story. Um, there's a reference to Arcalen, which is a ghost town near the town where they lived. There's a reference to Coronado's treasure, the legend that got retold all the time was that Coronado and his travels north buried a treasure near our town. <clears throat> the kind of story that's immediately recognizable as complete bullshit. <clears throat> uh, and um, uh, what else do I need to explain here? Oh, yes. Um, there will be a kind of a pause as I approach the end of the poem. Um, and it's not the end of the poem. I'm just pausing because there's an epilogue to the poem. And important to that epilogue is your recognition that in in the Southwest, in New Mexico and Arizona, uh, for instance, monasteries are actually pretty common out there. We don't know that, of course, because we never see them as we pass through, but, but that's something you need to know. 
And I think that's all I need to explain to rave on, actually. I would be, my heart would be warmed if anybody could tell me what, the, what rave on refers to. We don't have any rock and roll aficionados here. Pardon me? No, no, that's very good. I mean, that's actually a, that's actually a pun. No, Rave On was a song by uh, Buddy Holly that was very influential on the Beatles and so forth. So that's, that's what they're listening to is Rave On. And there's an epigraph to this poem too from a famous poem by James Dickey called Cherry Log Road. And the epigraph is the last line of that poem, wild to be wreckage forever. Rumbling over Caliche with a busted muffler, radio blasting Buddy Holly over Babs of Sweetfields, Travis screaming out, prepare ye the way of the Lord at Jack Rabbit skittering beneath our headlights, the Messiah coming to Kansas in a flathead Ford with bad plates, the whole high plains holding its breath, night is fast upon us low, and these the days of our youth, and we were hell on wheels, or thought we were, Boredom grows thick as maize in Kansas, heavy as drill pipe littering the racks of oil rigs where in summer boys roust about or work on combine crews north as far as Canada. The ones left back in town begin to die, dragging Main Street shit-faced on 3-2 beer and banging on the whorehouse door in Garden City where the ancient madam laughed and turned us down since we were only boys and she knew our fathers. We sat out front spitting red man and scanned a landscape flat as Dresden. Me, Mike Luckin, <clears throat> Bill, Billy Hines, and Travis Doyle, who sang, I'm going to live fast, love hard, and die young. We had eaten all the life there was in Seward County, but hungry still, hauled ass to old Arcalan, the ghost town on the Cimarron, that lay in half-shadow and a scattering of starlight. And its stillness was a kind of death, the last breath of whatever in our lives was ending. We had drunk there and tossed our bottles at the walls and pissed great arcs into the Kansas earth where the dust groweth hard and the clods cleave fast together Yea, where night yawns above the river in its long, dark dream, above haggard branches of mesquite, chicken hawks scudding into the tree line, and moon glitter on caliche like the silver plates of Coronado's treasure buried all these years. But the absence of treasure, absence of whatever would return the world to the strangeness that as children we embraced and recognized as life. Rave on. Cars are cheap at Roman salvage strewn along the fence out back where cattle graze and chew rotting fabric from the seats. Twenty bucks for spare parts and a night in the garage could make them run as far as death and stupidity required. On Johnson <clears throat> Road, where two miles of lower shoulders and no fence line would take you up to 60, say, and when you flipped the wheel clockwise, you were there, rolling in the belly of the whale, belly of hell, and your soul fainteth within you. For we had seen it done by Big Ed Ravenscroft, who said, you would go in a boy and come out a man. 
And so we headed back through town where the marquee of the plaza flashed creature from the black lagoon in storefront windows and the snack shack where we had spent our lives was shutting down and we sang, rave on, it's a crazy feeling out into the night that loom now like a darkened church and sing loud and louder still for we were sore afraid. Coming up out of the long tunnel of cottonwoods that opens onto Johnson Road, Travis with his foot stuck deep into the soul of that old Ford. Come on, Bubba, come on, beating the dash with his fist, hair flaming back in the wind and eyes lit up by some fire in his head that I had never seen. And Mike, Iron Mike, sitting tall and back with Billy, who would pick a fight with anything that moved, but now hunched over, mumbling something like a prayer as the Ford lurched on, spitting and coughing, but then smoothing out suddenly fast and the fence line quitting so it was open field. Then, then, I think, we were butt deep in regret and a rush of remembering whatever we would leave behind. Samantha Dobbins, smelling like fresh laundry, light from the movies spilling down her long blonde hair, trout leaping all silver and pink from Black Bear Creek, the hand of my mother, I confess, passing gentle across my face at night when I was a child. Oh yes, it was all good now and too late, trees blurring past and Travis wild popping the wheel, oh too late. Too late and the waters pass over us, the air thick as mud slams against our chests, though turning now the car in its low turning seems almost graceful, the frame in agony like some huge animal groaning, and when the wheels leave the ground, the engine cuts loose with a wail thin and ragged as a bandsaw cutting ten, and we are drowning breathless, heads jammed against our knees, and it's a thick swirling purple nightmare we cannot wake up from, for the world is turning too, and I hear Billy screaming, and then the whomp. Sick crunch of glass and metal. Whomp! Again, back window popping loose and glass exploding. Someone crying out, tink, tink of iron on iron overhead. And then at last, it's over and the quiet comes. Oh, so quiet. Somewhere, the creak and grind of a pumping unit. Crickets. The tall grass sifting the wind and a mass of whispers that I know I'll be hearing when I die. And so we crawl, trembling from doors and windows, born out of rage and boredom into weed-choked fields barren as Golgotha. Blood raked the side of Travis's face, grinning rapt, ecstatic. Mike's arm was hanging down like a broken curtain rod. Billy kneeled, stunned, listening as we all did to the rustling silence and the spinning wheels in their sad, manic song as the Ford's high beams hurled their crossed poles of light forever out into the deep and future darkness, rave on. Well, I survived. We all did. And then came the long surrender, the long, slow drifting down like young hawks riding on the purest, thinnest air, the very palm of God holding them aloft 
so close to something hidden there. And then the letting go, the fluttering descent, claws spread wide against the world, and we become, at last, our fathers. And do not know ourselves, and therefore no longer know each other. Mike Luck and Bill ran a Texaco in town for years. Billy Hines survived a cruel divorce, remarried, and then took to drink. But finally last week, I found this house in Arizona where the brothers take new names and keep a vow of silence and make a quiet place for any weary or lost passenger of earth whose unquiet life has brought him there. And so, after Vespers, I sat across the table from men who had not surrendered to the world. And one of them looked at me and looked into me. And I am telling you, there was a fire in his head and his eyes were coming fast down a caliche road. And I knew this man. And his name was Travis Doyle. Okay. That means it's time for the final poem. Um, This is a uh, fairly raunchy, low rent vulgar kind of poem, and I I think you'll like it. (laughs) This is called Brazil, and uh, like the boys in the last poem, um, uh, there was a certain amount of boredom in that little town, and when summer came, it was really the worst, because you didn't even have you know, the sports, football and basketball and so forth to keep you busy. And so uh, the lucky boys would get jobs on combine crews, which would take them up through the high plains, clear up into Canada. They would have all kinds of interesting experiences, get in fights, get drunk, um, have sex for the first time, which was always a lie. But... And then, and so the unlucky ones were the ones who had to stay back in town and try to keep their sanity over the summer. But some of us would go crazy before the others did and would do crazy things that would keep us entertained so that we did have our sanity when school started up again in, in September. Um, and I felt one day that I really owed something to those guys, and so I wrote this kind of homage to uh, these guys who would do these crazy things that kept us entertained in the summertime. Uh, There are some references I need to explain here. Uh, I've never explained this before, but maybe it's less often that people, that students have had the experience of doing like construction work or interior. Does everybody know what a caulking gun is? Yeah. Okay, good. That's great. (laughs) I don't need to explain. Um, And then... Well, I'm sorry I have to explain this. You would get them easily if you were reading it, but if I, re- if I am reading it to you, it will probably go right over your head. There's a reference to the trifecta. If you play the horses, there's a certain bet called the trifecta. 
Uh, and uh, you have to pick the three, uh, three uh, horses, first, second, and third, in order, right? Uh, the odds are long. <coughs> uh, you can really win a lot of money. But it's also the stupidest bet there is, and I ought to know. Um, <coughs> and so there's a, a reference to, the, to playing the trifecta. But, of course, to claim the money afterwards, you have to have your claim ticket. And then there's another reference here to the fact that I and my friends thought it would be <clears throat> a very valuable and intelligent thing to do in that little town to a sign. There was a sign that hung out over our little main street that said Freeman Glass. And we thought before we graduated, before we left town, we would knock the middle letters from Freeman Glass. Everybody done the math on that? Okay. If, 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 you're, if the person sitting beside you is still confused, you might just whisper an explanation of what happens when you knock the middle letters out from Freeman Glass. <clears throat> um, okay. Thank you again for coming. It's been a real pleasure here, and, um, and I've really enjoyed it. Brazil. <clears throat> this is for Elton Wayne Showalter. Redneck surrealist who drunk one Friday night tried to hold up the local 7-Eleven with a caulking gun. And who, when Melinda Bozell boasted that she would never let a boy touch her down there, said, down there? You mean like Brazil? <laughs> oh, Elton Wayne, with your silver-toed turquoise on black boots and Ford Fairlane dragging in a ribbon of sparks, its tailpipe down Main Street Saturday nights, you dreamed of Brazil and other verdant lands.